Welcome back to another episode of the Property Experience Podcast with Anna Porter and Nick Barlow. This podcast will take you behind the curtain of the property market nationwide. Welcome back to another episode of the Property Experience. We have Anna Porter and the amazing Nick Barlow again. Anna. Um, today we're talking about feasibility studies. So uh, this is a huge topic and it's actually a really important topic. This is where we see a lot of people going out to do a small, medium or even large scale project and getting the numbers wrong again and again or missing things and how costly that can be. And I want to do a deep dive into this today with you, yep. Nick, if you would so um, humor me. <laughs> so feasibility analysis. So that's basically looking at the total income a project will make and the total expenses, what falls out the bottom should be two things, the value of the land and the profit yep. in the project, are the two big key numbers you're looking for, right? Absolutely. Okay, so as a valuer, you've probably seen a few of these float around. Just a few. Just a few, okay. Uh, let's start with a couple of key things. Now, I, I wanna set the scene a little bit because this is what, I, the reason I wanna do this topic is because I've been seeing this on Facebook and it's really starting to drive me a little bit mental. Um, there's a lot of investment gurus out there um, that are now starting to become development analysis gurus. Now, um, we studied feasibility as part of our uni degree for quite a long time. There's quite a we lot did, in yeah. that subject. Yep. It's you know not an easy subject to pass either. <laughs> I nearly had two goes at it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but no, there's a lot in it, right? We did it for yes. a yeah. whole uni degree multiple times over. It's a four-year degree, so it's a big part of it. Um, so feasibility analysis is quite complex. It should be quite complex when done right. And there's a lot of firms out there that are turning to property development gurus and they are putting out things like our gross realisation, which I'll we'll make sure we clarify this in a minute. Our gross realisation is less our $2 million, say. So what we'll sell the end project for gross realisation, $2 million. Less our um, costs, construction or development costs at $1.2 million leaves a gross profit of $800,000. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I reckon I could turn your $800,000 gross profit into almost nothing like that once we count a lot of the costs. So yeah. people get caught up in that and get excited and go, oh, I'm gonna make 800 grand off the development. Is that really true? Is that what a gross profit is? It's not, is it? No, it's not. It's not It's not always, and it can't be done on the back of the coaster either. Um, there's, there's more than sort of four lines of calculations. <laughs> You don't say. <laughs> um, so when we're seeing this gross profit, people need to really understand what then has to be stripped back further. So if you've got a construction or development cost, which depends on the wording they use, there's a whole lot that comes in outside of that. So we're going to actually go into what those costs are. Um, so but terminology first. So gross realisation. Where so that means basically what they'll sell the project for, the total yep. value of the project. So once I've got my two townhouses, three townhouses, Yep. 10 townhouses. If I sell each for a million dollars times the number, that's my gross realization. Correct. Okay. Where do people go wrong with that, firstly? Is that something that's easy to work out? Well, depending on the project, if it's a, um, if there's plenty of recent sales evidence to establish that, uh, yes, it is. But you've got to look at it objectively. And one thing that I have heard all too many times is but mine will be better um, of course it will of course it will um, it won't necessarily be better unless it's got something tangible that makes it better yeah. uh, it won't be better just because you built it mm. uh, if it's got better views or a better location or better finishes than something else then that will be reflected in the end sale price but if it's 
a similar project to a lot of others, besides being brand new and market conditions remaining the same, then it will probably be a slight premium being brand new. Mm. But if you're comparing it with other brand new properties and the market conditions remain the same, there's no reason that it should get a whole lot more. And quite often, uh, we also see developers just banking on the market continuing and to improve and never to ever come back, which we have seen starting recently. Yeah, and, and that's why I'm seeing a lot of developers tipping out of Sydney because they can see that there's risk there, maybe too much risk. I mean, developers are good at taking risk. That's what they're in the business of is taking and managing risk for yep. profit. Um, so if they're tipping out of the Sydney market, that means there's a nervousness there. Uh, certainly other markets present opportunity. But uh, so there's two things you've touched on there. One mistake I see people often make is they will look at sales of other new products in the area mm-hmm. and compare it to what they're going to build, right? They may not look at the contract dates on those. So those properties, even though they're brand new and settling today, they're possibly most likely have been bought off the plan. 12 or 18 months earlier, possibly even longer than that ago. So they've got to consider the market movement in that time. When those prices were agreed to, those sales are now already outdated and the market could have gone up further or could have also come back or it may have stayed the same. So it has to be an adjustment there by the person making the analysis and an awareness of where those numbers have been been, um, agreed upon. And then also movement forward. So you don't build a project overnight. It's not the block. You don't. No, you don't build it overnight. <laughs> Unless you're in the block. Um, but in real life, it's probably 12, 18, 24 months, depending on the size of the project. Correct, right? yeah. And that will be uh, allocated or that will be uh, considered within the valuation and the time frame and the time lag. Yeah. Um, so, but what you want to always be doing with your gross realisation is looking at recent sales evidence and... Most bank valuations will require sales evidence within the last six months. So even if it's an off the plan and you're aware of something else that's sold off the plan, up the road that's very similar to your project, like you said, it could have been sold two years ago and it might not be reflective of this, of the current market and the bank wouldn't accept it anyway. Yeah. So talking about profit and risk. So there is a couple of places in a feasibility analysis where the developer makes their profit. And there's actually a a calculation there called PNR for profit and risk, right? So, you know, anyone should understand that the risk and the profit have a relationship to one another. If you don't, you shouldn't be doing a development. So developers take on risk and that's where they make profits. So the risk is things like um, the the size of the project. So the bigger it is, the riskier it is because your numbers get bigger, you're scaling more. So you've got risk in that. You've got risk in timelines and delays. You've got risk in even getting the DA approved. That's part of the risk, right? You may not get the DA approved or not in the form that you expect. So I find it really interesting when a lot of clients come to us and they want to build a two to 10 lot sort of duplex to townhouse thing and say, oh, you're going to take all the risk away from me, for me. Um, no, if I did, you'd make no profit. That's what you're, That's the shoes you're stepping into as a developer. You've got to take risk to make money. The more risk, the Correct. more money you want to make, risk, right? Risk and reward. Yeah, yeah, so you're making profit off the risk. So assessing the scale of the project and the risk is part of where you'd say, well, if I'm going to take on more risk, I want more profit. Um, uh, construction costs. So usually developers often are builders and have their own team of um, trades. Yep. So if they bring that on themselves and have to logistically manage that, then they're taking on some of that risk again, but also the construction elements, they'll save their builder's margin. If you outsource them and pay retail, 
um, then you're not going to get a builder's margin. So that strips away some of your profit. Yes, that's right. And the third one that you touched on that just then as well is that market uplift. Mm. So do developers kind of try to forecast a bit? How do they think about that? Where's their head at when they're doing these numbers? I mean, obviously everyone doing any kind of development, even if you're looking at doing extensions to your house, you're probably forecasting, well, if I spend 500,000, I'll then be worth X. And there will be a difference, usually, um, more than that 500,000, using that as an example, um, between the current value of your home and the end value of your home. And that will be the take, because it's taken away that risk for someone that comes in and walks in and buys it, and also the hassle factor, going through the process, all those things, and the time, yeah. So for anyone out there thinking about doing a development and you're looking at sites that look like they're going to make you 40 or 50% profit, it's probably not, you've probably not captured your numbers correctly, have you? It's probably not realistic for anything that's not a lend-lease style scale of project or a capital corp style scale of project. And I'm not saying they necessarily make 50%, um, they probably don't. But um, you you can't attract a 40 or 50% profit in the project itself unless you hold it and you sort of land bank it a bit and the market has significant upswing. Uh, th- that's market uplift. You would have got that whether you did the project or not, right? Well, so- that's, that's right, yeah. So most banks will be looking for, a, to make a, a, pro- a project feasible, they will look at, be looking at a profit and risk um, percentage of in excess of 10%. Um, some developers will accept less themselves yeah. I suppose if they can get the funding or they can self-fund it, they might be willing to accept 5%. Or they're happy to sit it in the market for a bit longer and it's more of a a future-proofing strategy or um, they're just buying themselves a job. We see a lot of builders. They're happy to take their 10% because that's their builder's margin just to buy themselves 12 months of work where they don't have to deal with a client. But that's a different... That's it, a different it analysis, is, isn't it? It is. So there's a few few things that you've touched on there that that have sort of come into it as well. Obviously, if it's a if it's an owner builder, they will be able to uh, profit off their uh, their contract with themselves. And again, but going just bring it back to say a bank's position. If you're borrowing for that funding and you don't have that cash sitting there to do it. You will, um, the bank will require you to provide a quantity surveyor's report mm-hmm. and that shows what the market rates for that project are and that will be adopted in the feasibility. Yeah. So, well, the bank has to take the position if you go broke before it starts or during that early stage, they need to have someone step into those shoes and complete the project. Correct. Or the future buyer might have that same Correct. scenario. And they don't have the benefit of... You mean my bank manager's not going to go out there with a hammer? No. What? Um, But as well, it means that the project stacks up in the market, not stacks up just because of your personal circumstances. So That's that's right. So if we said, um, what what I tend to see, and you might have a version of this, what I tend to see, um, a, a project, you know, again, weighing out these risk elements, a profit and risk would generally typically be measured around 10 to 25% on a standard sort of residential style project that's not, you know, a barangaroo. Yep. But a 10 to 25% is pretty well in the ballpark of what a developer would potentially accept, what the market would probably deliver on. Mm. Uh, once you do it as a, you know, pay retail rates in the marketplace on a, you know, it stacks up in the market feasibility, not I'm going to hold it for eight years and look at my own numbers feasibility. Yeah, that's right. And that's another one, even going back to, um, say or scaling that back to mum and dad they bought a block of land 
and that block of land has increased in value. The home's gotten older in that time and it's um, ripe for redevelopment, even into a duplex. And what, you know, what we're seeing is it's harder for younger people to get into the marketplace. And as so what they've agreed to do is they're gonna build a duplex and, and, and ha- occupy half each. But what they sort of find out when the valuation's done is that whilst they paid, you know, say 700,000 for the block of land and they say, but it only owes me 700, what is taken into account in the feasibility is the market value of the land at the time, which might be 1.5 million. Yeah, and the feasibility and the profit and risk is worked out on that number yeah. as opposed to the 700 they paid. Mm-hmm. So there might be definite profit in there, but a bank valuation will also include the current market value of the land and make sure it's feasible on that number as well. Yeah. So there's a couple of different elements and, you know, what we've we've touched on that where, you know, mum and dad might go to build a duplex, they've got plenty of equity, they've got plenty of borrowing capacity and, and also with the small time investor, oh, sorry, developer that might be doing three to five lot subdivision. Yeah, okay. So, and just for context, so Nick and I um, both sit across a lot of analysis of this kind of nature. Um, I personally work with clients who want to do things as small as a duplex. We run all the numbers and the analytics on that. Through to some major projects, I've got clients that are doing 50 lot subdivisions that I help analyze some of their numbers with. Um, I've sat across peer reviews of $170 million projects, $350 million um, entertainment quarter uh, we've sat across a lot of economics on major major projects through to very small stuff and the, the fundamentals are quite the same aren't they it's it's all about the the fundamental analysis of those numbers there's just the bigger projects have just a lot more zeros with a lot more risk they do yeah and there's <laughs> high, obviously high numbers you know too. <laughs> yeah there's there's additional costs with those things as well you know civil works for example internal roads and there might be a variety of different um and uses you know as opposed to five townhouses there might be a multitude of you know residential plus retail plus um office space for example within the same development so yes but the number the the actual itemized line items might be very similar yeah okay so i'm going to walk you guys through a bit of um the a bit of the analysis of some of the numbers that we crunch that sit in what they a lot of the investment gurus call that gross profit number which isn't a real thing by the way um well it's a real thing but it's not what you want to base your analysis off that's not one of the numbers that falls out the bottom that gets you um to a decision i would think it's just part of that process um so I mean, I'm also going to ask you about some of the costs that people often miss, but I, mm. I wanted to start and I'm, I'm going to have a quick look at my laptop here because, I mean, there's so many different numbers that I don't even memorize them off the top of my head. And, and I'm talking about here, just a small duplex style project. So once you've had your gross realization, you know, we'll sell this for two or $3 million. Um, we strip back our selling costs. So we've got, you know, agents fees to sell it, solicitors fees to sell it. The one that people always forget, GST, you're building a new project or a new product. So... When people talk about their gross realization, you actually need to come up with a net realization, which is less those numbers because you're going to pay GST the day you sell it. Correct. You take one eleventh off your GR or gross realization straight away. Day one, tax man's not going to let that slide, is he? Brand um, new residential property attracts GST. Yep. And like we've talked about before in covering commercial, 
GST is added to any commercial premises, regardless of its age or how many times it's been sold, GST is only applicable on brand new residential projects, once off, and it's paid by the developer as opposed to the purchaser. And it comes off. You can't go to the market and say, oh, these are worth $3 million, but if you could pay the GST on top of that, that'd be great. The market will go, no. no that gets stripped off, the developer has Correct. to hand that over as a cost base. Yep. Okay, so that's one we often forget. So when you're looking at those gross realizations uh, of someone's full line feasibility, you're gonna have to make that adjustment usually anyway. Um, then we go back and look at, um, there's other costs as well. We've got, um, we've got the construction costs. Now I've just recently looked at a project for a client of ours um, and we got some quotes for, it was again, just a duplex. It's not a huge project, but the quotes Construction cost per square meter for the same style of project range between $1,500 a square meter and $2,600 a square meter. Mm. That's a fairly big difference. It is. What would play into that swing, do you think? What are some of the things that can change that swing? Well, obviously, when you're getting quotes, you want to make sure that you're comparing apples with apples. So it'd be a good idea to give your chosen builders uh, a the same brief because if you just walk them through what you want to do they will automatically have to make assumptions on things you haven't covered mm -hmm. so they'll say all right well you haven't included this you haven't included that and some will include bare minimum and then some will take it to the nth degree and so that could be the reason for that big swing yeah yeah correct um, and then we've got to go, so we call that our hard costs, our hard construction or development costs. Then we've got what we call soft costs. So this will encompass thing and, and things like, I know this is not the all-inclusive exhaustive list, but let's just touch on some of the things that people often forget. So we've got professional fees, consultant fees, DA fees. So you're talking about architects, town planners, um, your development lodgement costs. Yep. Um, Surveyors. Surveyors. Now, I've actually got a list here, and there is. <laughs> Wait for it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. About 15 things on this list just to get to DA that you need yep. consultants' reports on. So, we're talking about things like BCA compliance, statement of environmental effects, livability design, landscape design, um, structural engineer initial design plans, arborist reports. Like, this is a thirty dollars to $40,000 bill just to get to DA, right? Correct. For a duplex. We're not talking massive construction. No. Then we've got to go to CC, construction certificate, which is the next approval we need. Now I've got about a dozen things on this list here of things like, you know, got certifiers, fees, geotech reports, engineer design, drainage design plans, um, you know, more engineers fees, council 94, um, oh, I think they call something different now, aren't they? Section, Section 94s, I think there's a new name for a lot of them. New South Wales based, every council's different, but we're pulling down another 50 or 60 grand in this process. So it's a $100,000 activity in many cases to get your DA and CC. That's right. That's before you even, you know, knock down the old building. So demolition, that's another one. Thank you, Nick. That mm -hmm. was going to be one of my next ones. So once you've actually decided to get your DA and CC, you've got demolition costs, which can run into the tens of thousands potentially. Um, let alone things like if you've got to encase sewers and easements in concrete, there's another yep. cost base in some of that, which people don't always look at. Um, then we've got a lot of other costs like holding costs, land taxes, interest charges on holding the land, which mm. obviously adds up as well. So there's a lot of cost sitting in that too. Um, and then some of the other things from a construction element, what are things that you also see people forget to factor in cost-wise when you've, you've built it? Do you get landscaping? Is that part of your what you usually get in your contract or is that additional cost? What else? Well, again, it depends on 
what builder you've asked to quote and whether or not they they will quote on that kind of thing. So again, making sure that they've got the same brief and either and you know specifically what it includes and what it excludes. And the exclusions will usually be on the very last page and they <laughs> could be quite long. A very short list or a very long list. Yeah. So but obviously you need landscaping in the development and that can be a significant cost as well. And so it's important to just be aware of what those things are and make sure that you've got quotes and you really know what that's going to cost you. Other things are, um, you know, your soft furnishings like um, carpets and, and blinds or um, your kitchen items. Yeah. yeah, and it's so common people don't realise that they're often exclusions mm. and it can add up. So if you're talking... My, my experience is more often than not landscaping is excluded or not even excluded from the builder's contract but excluded from people's analysis. They go, 2,000 square metre, that's everything. No, it's not. Garages, fencing, paving, yep. landscaping, carpet, blinds, upgrades to things like ducting, etc., etc. You can be putting another two or 300,000 per property onto this yep. project really yep. quickly. Yep. Really, really quickly. That's not even an exaggeration. Then we've got other soft costs like selling fees, legal fees to actually sell the properties at mm. the other end. Mm. And then we've got to find that line for profit and risk inside right. all of that. So I think we just made 800,000 disappear really, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> really, really quickly. Uh, but these are things people just don't consider. Do yeah, they? that's right. Especially if it's the first time you're doing a project like that. It's easy to say, well, I've paid X for the land. I'll build this, I'll sell them for Y. But there's so many more elements that come into it. Yeah, okay. So we need to go from that gross position to that net position, build in a profit and risk factor that we are actually going to be able to achieve a good outcome on, or if we're not, we understand that and take on that in our in our decision making. Yeah. Um, and then um, where do we do this analysis? It's like I've got an Excel spreadsheet that we use for smaller projects. Are there any programs that can help people with this kind of analysis? Yeah, so one that the, the, a lot of value is used is called a state master, and that has all these fees built into it. Um, it's obviously developed by people much smarter than you and I. Um, <laughs> I actually went to uni with the guy that developed it, and he is very smart. There you go. And I can attest to that. So, very, um, very smart. Yeah, one. and that, that you... The program is designed for feasibilities specifically, and it will prompt to make sure that, and it won't calculate an end figure until all those figures have been put in. Yeah, and that is that that this is the stuff that the big developers use. Like we've oversighted some of these peer reviews, and a lot of these real big developers are using these programs yep. for that reason. Um, for a smaller, more compact version of this, um, Archistar can be quite helpful. It yep. probably doesn't have as many of the inputs. You've got to kind of know a little bit more what has to go into this. You do, yeah, as opposed to a state master, which really prompts you and makes sure that everything is included. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But you can certainly get a bit of an idea on a project from... Correct. And Arkstar has other capacities to look for sites and actually be able to amalgamate sites and yep. look at zoning. So they're, they're different purposes, different Definitely. functions. Yeah. But they all cost money. Like, I mean, we, we, we've got Arkstar and we're paying, I would guess off the top of my head, about 12 grand a year for that. Mm. Like, that's an investment to have that. You've got to be doing this a lot. Definitely. Um, and then clients wonder why we charge them a certain amount when we do this analysis because we have a program that I could have bought a car, a small car with. Um, then you add, I mean, a state master's not cheap. That runs into thousands and thousands as well. Um, then you add in a few other programs that help with this and it suddenly starts to take on a, a cost base, doesn't it? Does, it? yeah. But yeah, it's costly to get it wrong too, isn't it? It is. Um, any other areas you see people make big mistakes or any other tips you want to throw out there? I think we've probably covered it. 
I think we've covered most of the things. Um, like I said, you know, it's important just to make sure that you know what you're trying to achieve out of it. Like we've talked about, uh, some people will build, be building a, a small duplex style project and they won't necessarily, because they're going to live in it, they won't necessarily, like obviously you want to make money out of it and you want to make sure that your property is worth what you've put into it. Mm. But you might not have the goal of a huge uplift immediately. Yeah. Like that's good to have, obviously, and it does usually uh, end up that way, especially with market conditions improving. Um, but you, just, you don't want to overcapitalize where you've you know, spent a million on your land, spent a million on your build, you've built a pair of duplexes and they're worth 800 each and you've got negative equity yeah. straight away. And that's that's something you want to be aware of. And that's the other line item I see people forget all the time is a contingency because things mm. go wrong. Mm. Timeframes blow out, costs blow out, variations happen that are outside of the builder's control. Yep. And you need that contingency because you know more often than not it gets used, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And especially with the current... Um, shortage of construction materials um, costs are going up by about 30 percent that, that's right so that that's one thing we've spoken to quite a few clients have been midway through projects and builders have said to them listen we need to renegotiate halfway through we see the state government do it all the time yeah. with their contractors yeah. and it happens with small time contractors as well and medium size where they just can't absorb these costs and they are out of their control. Well, a lot of them putting clauses in there to say if their costs go up so much they can renegotiate and pass yeah. on some of those costs as a variation. And a lot of them, are, when you've tried to hold, when you try to hold them to say, well, we have a fixed price contract, their answer is, well, then I'll go broke. So well, that's I mean, right. That doesn't it's, help anyone either, does no. it? And then you're gonna pay the higher market rate anyway when you have to recontract someone. That's right. And someone, it's, it's yeah, well, it's very hard to get a builder to pick up another builder's project halfway sure through. Problems. Who takes the it's, liability? It's really that's difficult. a whole other topic. Um, we will do that topic. <laughs> that, that's right. That's a whole other day. That's but a great topic. Yeah. So at the end of the day, someone has to pay for it, and if it's not the builder, it's going to be the owner yeah. because you don't get it for free. Yeah. And if you've ordered materials or you need to order materials to finish your project, a half-built project is no good to anyone. No, it's not, is it? And that's why the banks have these stringent checks and balances, which some people might think is ridiculous, but yep. It's to protect, it's not even just to protect the bank or to protect the, the developer or client. It's actually to protect the project. The it project is. needs to be protected in itself because if the project doesn't succeed, everybody loses. They do, yeah. Alrighty, that's a wrap. Thank you so much. See you soon. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.